people were wondering if right-leaning people would think that a wise person is just as right-wing as they are. What we found was really actually more interesting. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nico Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us, for info society, in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, let me thank our listeners. Thank you so much for continuing supporting us. Keep on listening. We have a lot of interesting stuff coming up next. And if you know somebody who may want to listen to this podcast, please recommend our podcast to them and show them how to subscribe to us. Today, we'll be talking about one of the core themes in wisdom, how to measure it, what it means. And we have my favorite wisdom researcher probably in the world, uh, Judith Gluck, who is a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Alpen Adria Klagenfurt in Austria with us today. Well, first of all, maybe Judith, you could say a few words about yourself. I already sort of introduced you, but thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited. I've never been on a podcast before, actually. <laughs> I'm a professor of developmental psychology, and I guess I've been studying wisdom for like 20 years, something like 20 years, more than 20 years now, because I started in 1999 when I was assigned to a wisdom project that, that I hadn't expected to happen ever in my life. Well, and ever since then, my main topic of research has really been yeah, as Igor mentioned, how to measure wisdom, um, how wisdom develops, what wisdom even means. And I'm still really absolutely right. fascinated by this topic. Do you have any sense when you sort of watch the news um, and you see public figures coming and going, do you ever sort of observe what you might describe as wise behavior in any of these public figures and anyone you might sort of say, you know what, this person, that, that's wise. Do you have any yeah, people that you kind of repeatedly come back to as wise figures in the public space that people might know about? Well, I mean, I can probably, I'm not going to talk about the US president. <laughs> um, somebody who comes to mind in my country is our president. We had a little bit of a crisis of our own, um, like half a year ago. Okay. And he had this completely like elder statesman type way of, ma of, of managing this crisis. He was really, he remained very calm. He was kind of he took his time, he made good decisions, he tried to include everyone in a decision. So I really felt um, that as close as a politician come, can come to kind of being publicly wise, this guy was doing a really good job. So nice to feel a nice feeling to be in a country that has someone like that. So that's Sebastian Kurz, right? The no, 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 no. Sebastian oh. Kurz is the no, okay. well, Oh, all right. Just want to make sure. No, no Sebastian no, no, Kurz. <laughs> Sebastian Kurz would be more like the, the opposite. Um, no, but okay, the chancellor. So I guess the, the, the Austrian system is different from, for example, the American system. We have a chancellor and we have a president. Right. And the uh -huh. president is a bit more like, I don't know, a monarch or something. So he's more like the representative person and usually doesn't take charge of everyday politics. But as long if, if there's some kind of crisis then the president has to make decision, Excel, decisions yeah. so that's that's his role and this guy is um yeah not sebastian Kurz. <laughs> so yeah so we are on the same page so it's not the acting uh, uh, no. head of state but the one who would be like the queen of england exactly yeah right wow so yeah okay so we almost had a bit of a conflict right there at the get-go of our conversation that's been resolved <laughs> that was i'm sure time. some people in austria probably would be very happy to hear if it was sebastian Kurz. uh but uh yeah i mean there are quite a number of different opinions about that personality 
Yeah, absolutely. Like in many other countries of the world right. at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I just wanted to ask that question because often when you read the sort of the literature around wisdom, you're like, God, this sounds like a great idea and everything, but is this ever actually going to manifest in the world in a real person? So it's nice to know that you do see this this, this kind of aspirational behavior actually um turning up in the real world. So that's encouraging. But um I think yeah, Igor wanted to ask you some questions. We, we want to go back, way back. So you said like 20, more than 20 years ago. <laughs> so I, I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> Specifically, you mentioned uh, that you started working on something else at the beginning when you came to Berlin. Uh, you were doing some psychometric research. And then you encountered this gentleman, uh, Paul Baltus, who basically threw you into wisdom or threw wisdom on you. So how exactly did that happen? So can we like maybe spend a few seconds talking a little bit <laughs> well, about it's, that? It's, it's, it's kind of a fun story, actually. It's a little bit um, the reverse order of what you just said, because oh, okay. um, Paul Baltus right. was the person who, who recruited me to come to Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I should start even earlier, because like uh, I think two years before I actually came to the Max Planck Institute myself, I went there for a summer school. And it was some kind of, I was a okay. method geek, really. So I was really into item response model and all kinds of fancy, at that time, fancy mm -hmm. statistical methods. And that was mm -hmm. a summer school on, at that time, novel models for modeling change. So I was really interested in that. And that's how I first got to the Max Planck Institute. And this, I, I don't know if you've, uh, you've been there, Igor, for sure. It's this kind of fancy modern building. And there are all those really like cool people working there from my, from my <laughs> perspective then at least. Right. And so I was at the summer school and all those really big shots, you know, were giving talks and presentations. And then I, <laughs> I ended up going uh, on a sailing trip with somebody um, who was working there. And then this guy on the sailboat talked about Paul Balt and essentially said, well, mm -hmm. Paul, Paul won't even talk to people who haven't had at least one paper in psych review, you know. And so I, I was very young and very ambitious. So I immediately decided that my one of my main goals in life was going to be talked to by Paul Bart. <laughs> so next thing that happens in this story is that like one and a half years later, um, I'm at a big conference and Paul Baltus of all people offers me this job. So it was clear I was going to take that job, <laughs> whatever it was, right? And then when I came to Berlin for my job talk, he said, um, I would like you to work on wisdom. And ah. I was like, okay. Um, before that, <laughs> I'd been doing statistics and I had been doing spatial cognition. So this was totally, totally novel. So, yeah, I was really thrown into completely new waters I had no, I mean, I had a little idea about wisdom research by then because, of course, after Paul said that, I read everything that they'd been publishing. But yeah, it was completely new to me. <laughs> and what I time no was that? When, when approximately this was in 1999. Was I started in April of 1999. And I still have no idea why Paul felt that I should be a wisdom person. Really, I don't. <laughs> I never asked him, actually. Uh, this is for our listeners. Uh, Paul Baltus was of the key probably founding figures of the modern wisdom research. So that's why we sort of dive into him through through you, Judith. I, and I hope you can forgive me uh, for asking you this. What do you think would be his perspective on the field of wisdom science now if he could sort of like suddenly look up and look around and see what's happening now? That's a really interesting question. I think 
one thing is that he would certainly be enthusiastic to see how many people have basically taken up wisdom research. At the time um, he started it, he was really, I mean, the, the Berlin lab was pretty much the only lab in the world doing empirical wisdom research, which certainly had its good sides because they also kind of dominated um, the field for some right. time. But I think he would very much like the diversity of, of things that are happening right now, the amount by which wisdom research has grown. I think you would love your work on situational factors and how situations affect wisdom. That's certainly a perspective that I think you would like a lot. He would probably, or he, I, I'm not sure about that. He might want us to get a little more theoretical again, to become a little more conceptual in, in, in what we think wisdom is and how we think wisdom really works. But generally, I think he would, I, I wish actually in a way that he could see how much has grown from his early work. Right. And so one of the things there that uh, I think you would probably be very excited about is your book that you published in uh, German, uh, was it in 2016? Yes. Uh, the Five Principles of a Successful Life. Now we are fast forwarding those 20 something years. <laughs> Can you give us a little summary of what are those five principles that you're talking about in the book? Well, the book is basically just a popular version of my so-called more life experience model. So it's basically I'm in the book. I'm just basically talking about my ideas of how wisdom develops. And I'm illustrating what, what was really fun in writing this book What I'm was that I'm illustrating those five resources um, by lots of examples. So um, we did this large project where we interviewed people about difficult experiences from their lives. Uh, we had mm -hmm. very wise people and somewhat less wise people in that study. And they all told us stories about difficult things that happened in their lives, how they had dealt with them, what they had learned from them. And we basically analyzed those stories for um, those five resources for the development of wisdom. And so what I'm doing in the book is just telling lots of stories and using them to illustrate those five principles. And principles is basically the word. Um, the original word that the publisher wanted was the five secrets of wisdom. And I, mm -hmm. I refused mm -hmm. that. So <laughs> we ended up yeah. with um, yeah. those principles. Secrets um, sell better. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what they were saying. But they were okay, so they they accepted my refusal, and so we yeah principles was kind of the middle ground between resources and secrets, right? The question is really what enables some people to grow wiser from experiences mm -hmm. that might leave other people basically like embittered or just whatever somehow able to deal with them, but not really growing or learning from them. So basically what I'm saying in the book is this, that there are five resources or principles that help people to grow from experiences. So the first is essentially openness, openness to especially different perspectives, different experiences, different ideas. So the first thing um, that we're saying is that if you're open to new experiences, you're simply more likely to have things happen in your life from mm. which you can grow. Mm. And then, of course, if something happens to you that's kind of difficult or challenging, you may have a lot better chance to grow from that if you listen to other people's perspectives, right? So if you're in this conflict with somebody and you manage to find somebody else who can maybe explain to you why that person is behaving so weird, then you might be able to learn something from that, mm -hmm. right? So basically, openness to different perspectives is 
one personality mm -hmm. resource that helps people learn and grow because it simply enables them to see different perspectives. Mm. Right. Um, the next one, I'm trying to find a good um, order. Yeah, one important thing is the whole emotional domain, basically. So one thing mm -hmm. that I think is essential is empathy, though you probably might want to call it compassion, but that would make for Mork and not more as <laughs> 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 the acronyms. Uh, that doesn't work at all, does it, Mork? The Mork model is not as good no, as the more life experience one, right? <laughs> so, we use, so that's why we used <laughs> the Mork model. No, so that's why we used empathy. Basically, simply meaning the ability to feel other, not, not, maybe not feel other people's feelings, but sense other people's feeling and understand how other people are feeling, which I believe is an early predecessor of um, caring about other people's feelings, right? So if you if you mm -hmm. realize as a little kid in the sandbox that that other little kid is crying because you took their bucket away, you have a, probably a higher likelihood mm -hmm. to learn to be interested in understanding other people's perspectives over your lifetime, mm -hmm. right? And so basically, I believe that empathy and the more complex forms of empathy that we, we develop as adults, where we're able to read even other people's complex emotions, is something that we need to act wisely when we're like giving advice, for example, mm -hmm. to somebody. Mm -hmm. So the next, the, the, the third um, resource is also emotion related, but to our own remo emotions. So this is basically emotional sensitivity being sensitive mm -hmm. to my own emotions as well as those of other people and being able to regulate my emotions, which does not mean suppressing them or ignoring them, but not right. necessarily having everybody confronting everybody with them, yeah. right? <laughs> Depending on what the emotions are, but being attentive even to complex emotions, difficult feelings, ambivalent feelings, feelings I don't like to have, mm. acknowledging them and being able to deal with them. So that's something that helps people a lot when they are faced with difficult situations and helps them learn something about themselves, something about others from such experiences. Then a kind of probably rather obvious component or resource is reflectivity, being both willing mm -hmm. and able to think about things that happened to me, to question my own behavior, to question my own perspective, to even look at other people's perspectives. And this is on a cognitive level, right? So this is really thinking about thinking about myself, thinking about my own feelings, mm -hmm. thinking about other people and their feelings and being willing to kind of spend time thinking about experiences that mm -hmm. I have. And the final component has um, changed its name several times. I think now we're calling it mm -hmm. managing uncertainty and uncontrollability. And that's a component that I find particularly interesting. We find that wise people are more, much more aware than other people how, of how little we can actually control in our lives, how much in life is unpredictable, how much of what happens to you is random, is just something that you cannot control. But th that doesn't make them like hide under their desk and <laughs> never come, come out again because they're not scared of uncontrollability. They know that what everything may happen to them at any point in their lives, but they also right. know that they can deal with whatever happens, right? So it's mm -hmm. a kind of realistic feeling. They don't have control illusions. It's a realistic estimate of their own control, but also an awareness of how well they'll be able to manage whatever happens to them. Before we kind of get into your model in more detail, you last year, I think, worked with uh, Sternberg on putting this, the state of the nation kind of book together about wisdom, <laughs> oh, yeah. Cambridge Handbook of Wisdom. Now, um, I'm kind of interested, like, 
on a personal level, I'm interested in what that experience is like, sort of trying to encapsulate a whole field in a moment in time and give fair balance to all the different parties. And then I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested maybe if you could just kind of give us a bit of an overview of what are the sorts of key models that are around? Um, what are the different, what's the range of perspectives that academics have when they, they conceive wisdom in 2020 here today? Where are we at with all that? Well, first of all, the experience of um, editing this book. I mean, the, the nicest moment certainly is when you finally have the book in your mailbox. Yeah, I yeah. got, and, and then you feel like you, could, you you might probably smash somebody's head with this brick <laughs> that you've created somehow because it's really, it's like 800 and something pages. I couldn't believe it when I first saw it, actually. I was never aware of how, how, how big it actually yeah. was. Which how is heavy really, wisdom can be. Yeah, how heavy, exactly. And I don't believe that anybody except Bob and me has, is ever going to read this whole book because <laughs> <laughs> it's just too much information, sure. um, which is fine, of course, because I, I would expect people to look into those things they find most interesting. Um, and it's been a really interesting experience. I learned a lot, of course, from reading the chapters, from interacting with the authors, from yeah, giving feedback to people. Uh, it's been it's been great, and it's been really exciting. It's hard to summarize because the book is really so big. I think. One thing that I really like about the current state of wisdom research is that there is there are many different groups of people working on different, somewhat different conceptions of wisdom, using somewhat different methods mm -hmm. to study wisdom. But there is there are some fields of convergence, really. So it's kind of coming together in a way. Mm. To me, the whole construct as a whole begins to make sense in a way because there are many different facets and people are focusing on different things. But it's kind right. of coming together as some as a general construct that we are beginning to really understand quite well. I think. Is it possible to say what it's co coalescing around, or is that too big a question? <laughs> I think <laughs> it's a, it's a big I think question. It is a, it's a big question, right? I mean, I'm I'm also trying to figure it out for myself, so I'm working on some kind of overarching conceptual model, but I keep throwing it over and <laughs> redrawing basically the components. But I think what we are seeing more and more clearly is that, I mean, one thing that Igor, that you have really brought to the field, I think, is this focus on wisdom as a state more than a trait. Basically, all of us can be wise sometimes and all of us are wise sometimes. And this whole idea that situations shape how wise people can be. At the same right. time, I'm still fascinated by how some people are able to be wise in a range of situations where most other people aren't anymore right? Mm -hmm. when things get emotionally very challenging and i'm thinking that we're getting a beginning to get a good understanding of what aspects of wisdom are coming together to enable wisdom right and that might really be important for also for the next steps in wisdom research because those five uh, principles that you describe in your trade book are based on this more model so we want to dissect this more model now in a little bit so can you first give us an overview how this model works and how those five aspects of wisdom sort of uh, address something that may have been overlooked in other models that exist out there? So I think the, the, the main, the most important thing about the moral model, which is really called the moral life experience model, mm -hmm. is that we, were, we weren't trying to understand what wisdom is, but how wisdom develops. So the question that Susan Black and I started from was really, 
um, why do some people grow wiser over time in the course of their lives, right? Why do some people grow wiser through having a terrible divorce or through losing somebody they love or whatever, while other people don't grow from that, right? (laughs) Many people are able to basically return to some level of happiness. Some people are actually left embittered and desperate from after such experiences. And some people really like develop wisdom, right? Some people grow from such experiences. And so we were wondering um, why. So one basic assumption is that the catalysts of growth toward wisdom are really those life challenges that happen to all of us sometimes, but not not every day. Those things that kind of throw over the basic assumptions we had about life and about the world, right? For example, your long-term partner cheating on you or you having a terrible accident where you always thought you were the best driver and nothing could happen to you mm. or you losing your job or maybe something positive such as having your first child, which completely changes people's outlook on, on life mm. and on the world very often. So basically something happens that changes challenges and changes what you've been, your worldviews, basically, what you've been thinking is important in life, what you've been thinking life is all about. And then some people, based on those resources that I talked about earlier, such as openness, empathy, reflectivity, are able to grow wiser from such experiences as they live through the experience and as they later think back about it, right? If something has happened to you and has changed your life, maybe you look back like a year later and think about, okay, so what what was this actually? What does it mean? What does it tell me about myself? What does it tell me about life, about other people? And some people are able to learn things that make them wiser. So that's essentially the story of the of them underlying the model that people grow. I guess I think everybody learns something from challenging life experiences. But some people might just learn that all people are bad or you shouldn't mm-hmm. trust anybody mm-hmm. or that it's really important to look after yourself. Mm-hmm. And then there are those people who learn that, yeah, it's really important to listen to other people and and to know what's really important for yourself and to live a life that's right for yourself and things like that that um, seem to be associated with wisdom. So what we're really trying to do is understand why some people grow towards wisdom. And one thing that by now I think is maybe as important as those resources that I described earlier is Mm -hmm. external resources. And that's something that we originally pretty much overlooked in the model. People don't only learn by themselves, people learn a lot by talking to others, to by hearing from others, by listening to people talking about experiences. And that's, I think, one part that we may have been missing a little bit in the original model. So one thing that you talk about there is this distinction between redemption and exploration. And yes. I find this fascinating. This is sort of a redemption type of reflection leads to well-being, uh, exploration leads to wisdom. So do you really have to choose between the well-being and wisdom? What's going on there? No, I don't think so. Um, this is this is work that Nick Westray did um, when he was here working with us a few years ago. And he basically looked into those stories that people told us and analyzed the way that people reflected upon about experiences. Mm-hmm. And he found that there's this redemptive way of reflecting, which basically says, okay, something bad happened to me and I'm glad that it's over. 
and I don't want to look back very much, which is very good for restoring well-being quickly, but it's not so good for learning and growth, right? And then there's people who explore what happens, and those people are more likely, obviously, to, to grow and learn from that. But it's wise people or people orient, oriented towards growth are not unhappy. <laughs> That's something that I find very interesting. I actually looked into some data recently. I did a little scatter plot of wisdom and happiness or well-being mm -hmm. or any kind of measure of that kind. And what we basically, what I basically found was not a very high um, linear relationship. So it's not like wiser people are happier. But basically, when you look at very wise people, they are really, all of them are really happy, independent mm -hmm. um, of, of, of other things. And we... Mm -hmm. We've, we've done some qualitative work as well on how wise people actually live. One of my uh, students, Katja Naschenweng, some years ago did this study where she basically ethnographically followed uh, five very wise people from one of our studies around and looked at how they live their everyday lives. And she found that what those people do is basically they live exactly the life that is right for themselves because they know themselves very well. They know what they need. They know what's important to them. And they know how to get that. They don't care about like power or money. They care about talking to people, having good conversations, learning from people. They talk about learning about the world. They also care about nature, interestingly. All of them said that nature was a major resource for them. They care about arts, philosophy, things like that. And they live very rich lives that are just right for themselves. And I thought that was a fascinating finding, actually. So wise people ex are able to explore in depth what difficult experiences mean. They are able to look at what they may have done wrong. They are able to look mm -hmm. at how they have hurt somebody else, things like that. But they are able to do so because they are basically at peace with themselves. So they are basically, they're basically accepting their own weaknesses, and that's why they are happy. In our study, exploratory reflection was not correlated with well-being, but it's still wise. I, I would still say that wise people are happy. Very interesting. So there are two more questions about the moral model. One of them, in the past, we looked at you know variability in wisdom from one station to the next. So some of my work that uh, you already talked about. In your work on the moral model, there is also this suggestion that there will be a variation how wisely people reflect from one situation to the next. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what would influence how wisely people can reflect? And perhaps also a little bit about the role of others, other people yes. in crafting stories about your experiences that would lead to a wiser reflection. Yeah, that's, that was one of the big surprises in that first large project that we did. We basically just interviewed people about two different um, difficult events from their lives because we weren't mm -hmm. sure which one would work better. So we interviewed everybody about one difficult conflict in their lives and one about one uh, unspecified difficult event from their lives. And we were just doing this to try out which, which interview would work better. Um, essentially, our assumption was that at a certain point in your lifespan, you have a certain level of wisdom, and so you'll be talking equally wisely about one event or the other, right? So, mm -hmm. when we were so what we found and what really surprised us a lot was that quite a lot of people would talk very wisely about one thing that happened in their lives and very unwisely about another one. Mm. So statistically speaking, the correlation was really quite low. I found later that 
the, the relationship was stronger among wiser people. So if you look at very wise people, it's unlikely that they'll be very unwise in talking about one of their experiences. But across a normal sample of people, it was really striking how, how little um, correlation there was, right? So that really made us think about how is it possible that someone talks very wisely about their conflict with their daughter and very unwisely about mm -hmm. another thing that happened in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said already, Igor, I believe that one thing, one issue here is really who they have talked to about an experience and um, how they have told the story of that experience to themselves and others, right? Because sometimes I guess we all know who we have to go to if we know what we want to hear. Right? <laughs> if I want to hear a certain interpretation of something that happens to me, I could probably go to my mother and tell her the story in a certain way and I would get to hear exactly what I want mm. to hear at that moment. Right, right. But I also know that I have some friends and if I tell them the story, they might tell me something that I might not really want to hear, but that might be much more helpful for me to to learn something from that episode in my life, right? So I think the the way we talk about a story and who we talk to about a story certainly can certainly shape um, how wisely we can talk about something. And so I guess probably one reason why this, this correlation was so low is that many people have parts of their life where they are absolutely willing to be criticized, to hear different perspectives. And then we mm -hmm. have other parts of our lives where we really don't want to, <laughs> to hear that we maybe did something wrong or to hear a very different perspective. So that might be one, one factor. One factor might really just simply be what the situation was and who you ended up talking to about it. But then right. there might be also this factor of do I actually want to hear about what I may have done wrong in this particular area, right? So I think it might really be interesting to look at, I mean, we'd have to have different data for that, but to look at what topics, who talks about wisely or less wisely, right? Whilst we have you on the podcast, we really want to pick your brains about how you measure wisdom, because that's that's basically the second question that ever comes up when you talk about wisdom. People go, like, what, is, what is wisdom? <laughs> and they kind of go, hmm, yeah, okay, that's wait a minute, how would you, how would you even start measuring that? Now, thankfully, with, you know, you have this psychometric background, you said at the start, that's what you were actually working on prior to transferring over to wisdom. So you really are the perfect person to ask, answer these questions. <laughs> um, and we've got, we've got some, a few more detailed questions in a bit, but you wrote a paper called Measuring Wisdom, Existing Approaches, Continuing Challenges and New Developments a couple of years back. Could you just kind of give us a bit of an overview of what are the kind of key issues when you try and measure something as uh, fiendish as wisdom? And, and what are the key findings from that paper? Again, I know I'm asking insanely broad questions, but, <laughs> and we'll go into it in a bit more detail, but just a bit of an overview of, of what you kind of were trying to get across in that paper. Yeah, I mean, what I was trying to do was basically show that we are not yet measuring wisdom optimally, but right. we're making progress there. So it's, re I mean, of course, that's exactly as you say. The first question when I tell people I'm studying wisdom is, so what is wisdom? And the second question is, how do you measure that? How can you <laughs> right. measure that? Yeah. Do you think you can measure that? Yeah. So basically, yes, I think we can measure that. Um, we are not yet at the optimal way of measuring it, but we are, I think we'll be getting there at some point. Mm. So basically, two, there two ways of measuring it that have been um, used most of the time. The first one is self-report scales. And those are just like self-report scales, you know, for measuring 
personality or all kinds of attitudes. So it would be statements such as, um, I am good at identifying my own subtle emotions, or I try to look at all perspectives on an issue before making a decision. And then people agree more or less to each mm -hmm. of these statements mm -hmm. and you compute some kind of wisdom score. Mm -hmm. The main problem, there are two main problems that I see. One main problem is that people might not be able to um, realistically evaluate themselves, right? Um, right. I think being, being good at identifying one's own subtle emotions is a nice example because if you imagine somebody who that is really bad at noticing their subtle emotions, they would probably say they're very good at that because, yeah, yeah. because they don't know, they don't even notice yeah, <laughs> most yeah. of those emotions that <laughs> might be there for them to notice, right? Mm -hmm. Or somebody who says, I always look at all perspectives. Well, who of us really does that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we all like to claim, like to believe that we sure. are people who do uh -huh. that, right? Yeah. So I think it is really objectively difficult to, to yeah, evaluate oneself in terms of wisdom. And the, the, this is a problem with every self-report scale, obviously, mm -hmm. but it is kind of particularly problematic for wisdom because wisdom involves self-reflection and right. a somewhat self-critical attitude, right? Mm -hmm. So asked about their subtle emotions, a very wise person might say, well, um, I tried to do that, but I, I couldn't really say I'm very good at that. I, uh, so I'm, I'm going to cross like the, the four of the five categories. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other person who isn't even aware of their subtle emotions is probably yeah, going great. for the Fight, right? So of course I can do that. No problem <laughs> yeah. at all there. So you'd end right? up with them being rated higher than someone who was actually exactly. wiser. Right. It's exactly. So the wiser person will describe themselves as mm. less wise. And that's mm. a real problem, right? Yeah. So the other the other problem with that, and Igor has written a lot about that, is that people in, in such scales, in such self-report scales, people usually describe their typical behavior, right? And most of the time, most of us are relatively good at taking other people's perspectives, right? But then wisdom might be required, especially in those situations where it's especially hard to do that, right? And we mm -hmm. don't usually refer to those situations when we give a general estimate of how, how, how good we are at those kinds of things. So just basically evaluating your general propensity for certain um, behaviors is going to be very, very much influenced by all kinds of, yeah. of self, of, of ideas, positive ideas ideas, illusions sure. we have about ourselves. <laughs> and as Igor has shown, if you ask people concretely, um, now think back about a conflict you had in the past few weeks, and now tell me how much you really looked at different people's perspectives mm -hmm. in that conflict, mm -hmm. things might look very different, right? right? So this, is, this also means, and Igor has written about that, that we can probably use self-report scales with still some, some reservations, but only if we ask about concrete situations and much less if we ask about life in general, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the one um, approach that has been used. The other approach, which takes a lot more effort, is performance measures, where okay. we actually present people with a difficult life problem. And then we ask them, what do you think the person should do? Mm -hmm. Or what would you do? Or mm -hmm. what, whatever. Yeah. And then people write or talk about the problem and we record what they write or talk somehow and then transcribe it and then analyze it in terms of criteria for wisdom. And you can imagine how much right. work that is. Yeah, geez. <laughs> Of course, it's much. It works better because people will show that the level to which people are able to think about to take different people's perspectives, for example, is going to show in this kind of approach. But one thing that I think is still still missing from those approaches is that we usually don't 
engage people emotionally very much. And we couldn't possibly do that, right? We couldn't or we wouldn't want to put them in serious conflicts in the lab. So we cannot mm-hmm. just basically ask them what Mr. X could do in the serious conflict mm-hmm. that he is in. Or we could ask them to imagine a serious conflict or to talk about a serious conflict from their past. Mm-hmm. But we will never really be able to really capture how they deal with their ongoing emotions in a serious conflict. Mm-hmm. So there's still something that's missing, but mm-hmm. I think those methods are yeah, getting there a little better. On that question, actually, about when you, you present people with a dilemma and you say, okay, so what would you do? You said in that paper that was, this kind of jumped out at me a little bit. You said, if you present a dilemma to people and then you give them a list of options, you know, what would you do? Number one, number two, number three, number four. They're really good. Well, they're, they're generally quite good at picking which is the wisest, according yes. to the, whatever um, scale you're using, the wisest option. But if you, if you say, generate the the solution or the response yourself the average response is not nearly as wise so i'm just kind of interested in that sort of asymmetry we seem to be we seem to be able to recognize wisdom we go yeah that's the one yeah number seven do that but mm-hmm. uh, so why are we able to recognize the, the wisest response but not very good <laughs> at making it ourselves I guess it's, it's it's probably a good thing that people are at least able to recognize yeah, right, wisdom when they see it. Well, yeah. I mean, if you imagine you were trying to do this, and I've tried it several times, we const- you construct a complicated dilemma that involves like lots of different interests and perspectives, and then you kind of design different possible responses. First right. thing is going to happen is that the wiser response is going to be longer <laughs> because it takes all those different perspectives into account and sure. balances them somehow. Mm-hmm. So that makes them easy to recognize. Any any response where somebody just says, well, um, Bob is right and Jane is wrong, so they should just go for what right. he says, is not <laughs> right. is going to stand out as certainly not particularly wise. Mm-hmm. A response that says, well, we have to consider this and that about Bob and Jane is going to be wiser and longer. So I think that it's, it's really an interesting phenomenon in itself that people are quite good at recognizing whether a solution is really good for everybody and it kind of implicates that they have an idea of what yeah. what what a wise solution what wisdom is really right yeah, yeah. but yeah in in real life or even not in real life but even when they're presented with the problem in an open ended um, fashion they are not going to be able to create that solution it's just yeah i think several people have tried that out and mm. it just doesn't work well, that's that's kind of good and bad news, I suppose, mixed together. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but it's also like a general tendency of if you even look at the memory uh, for anything, uh, the recall is harder than yeah. recognition. So yeah, it's like right. it goes in yeah. the same direction as uh, typical cognitive process. So wisdom is not any different there yeah. than so that's just, normal memory. That's right. Okay. Often the topic of wisdom and age comes up on the podcast. It's something that the public kind of have a quite a strong idea about. They, you know, again, it's one of the problems. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're all getting wiser. That's something we can, that we can use to compensate our sort of decrepitude. As, as we're all getting older, you mean? Yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah, <laughs> good point. We uh, wish we were all getting wiser. Yeah, oh, I gave away my folk belief there. Um, but um, so... Where in this paper, when you talk about the sort of correlations between different wisdom measurements and age, they're kind of all over the place. Like some of them seem to show a kind of straight correlation. Some of them uh, show like inverse correlation. Some of them show no correlation. Some, uh, you know, inverted use. Some uh, normal use. Any? Do you have any sense as to why 
why such a variety of relationships seems to emerge from these different wisdom measurements. Yeah, I actually tried to analyze this in some more detail in one in one chapter that I once wrote, where I just looked at different self-report scales and um, found I identified different subscales, like different little um, right. groups of statements within them that showed different patterns of different relationships to age. I think the point is really that every measure of wisdom that you use is measuring a certain um, composition of components of wisdom. So some mm -hmm. methods, some, some of those measures focus on something like fluid intelligence, where it's really about being aware and uh, being aware of the complexity of problems and being able to think about them in a complex way. And others uh, focus on something like self-transcendence, where it's basically about feeling close to other people and close to humanity as a whole. And in this latter case, for example, you actually find a strong, not strong, but a clear positive relationship to age so that kind of feeling feeling close to other people feeling close even to other generations and to the world at large is something that increases with age thinking about complex issues in a complex way decreases with age um, depending on what age range you think about but i'm not talking about old age so different components of wisdom that all basically together make up wisdom and um, have different age trajectories and depending on which of those components a measure really focuses on the measure will have a different curve with respect to wisdom and that looking at them in this way actually replace, uh, explains some of those weird patterns that we find where really every measure se seems to have its own pattern and they <laughs> so are you can make related. any story you want you take, depends yeah, on what absolutely. you pick you find, you find the perfect evidence for anything you pick. Right now, I personally, having turned 50 last summer, I believe that late middle age is really the phase. Uh, all right, interesting. <laughs> okay. Perfect. But we'll see how that changes in the next 20 years. Yeah, it'll probably go up. Uh, the peak will go up one year every year. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a, a paper that uh, I read of yours recently, which was about people from different sides of the political spectrum, how they conceive the values that a wise person would have. And this is a really interesting paper. So I kind of got a, uh, maybe you could start by just giving us an overview of what left-leaning people tend to, how they tend to describe the values associated with the wisdom and, and how that differs from right-leaning. And then I've obviously, I've got an inevitable follow-up question about that, but maybe you could start by just telling us, is there a difference in how left-leaning and right-leaning people conceive of the values associated with wisdom? There is a difference, but not as much difference as I feared there might be originally. Right, right. Um, this mm -hmm. this whole uh, line of research started from the experience, an experience that we had that was kind of a little creepy. It was actually 12 years ago that our then governor of Carinthia, a province, the province of Austria that we are in, Jörg Haider, some people might even know the name, um, died in a car accident. And he had been a really corrupt, um, highly problematic, racist, um, right-wing politician. Mm -hmm. and I didn't he, know he was um, from Carinthia. Yeah, he was. He was our governor oh here in Carinthia. And, um, World famous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Carinthia was quite famous at the time for him. And, and he died in this car accident. Uh, by, by coincidence, shortly before we started recruiting wisdom nominees for our first wisdom project okay. here, <laughs> there was actually an ad in a newspaper that uh, reported on his funeral. And on a, there was a little on the same page, there was this little ad saying the University of Klagenfurt is looking for wise people. <laughs> so we actually got some, 
uh, some phone calls by people nominating people who had been working with Haidar or even family members of his family as, mm. as very wise people, right? right? And we were very surprised about that because, I mean, we mm-hmm. knew that people, people loved him. He was really a governor that many people just loved for many actually quite good reasons, I guess, from, from the perspective of the Corinthian people. But I would never have thought that anybody might consider him, him or people working with him as wise, right? Mm-hmm. So I started mm-hmm. wondering, is this just because I am projecting my own values into um, what I think people think wisdom is? Mm-hmm. So we, we started doing those a, a little series of studies where we asked people, to report on their own values and also on their own political orientations and then to um, fill out the same value questionnaire as they think a wise person would do. So um, basically right. we were wondering if right, right-leaning right people would think that um, a wise person is just as right-wing as they are, right? right. Okay. And that was the, the, the little fear that we had in yeah, those studies. Yeah. What we found was really actually more interesting. There are some differences. Right-wing people do think that wise people are some what less universalistic than left-wing people do. So universalistic means really caring about the world as a whole, mm-hmm. caring about mm-hmm. humanity as a whole. They do think that mm-hmm. wise uh, that, that wise people care about their own group. Everybody thinks so. But of course, left-wing people think more strongly that they also care about the world at large. Mm-hmm. Okay. The interesting thing is that right-wing people also believe that wise people are much more univer- universalistic than they themselves are. <laughs> ah. Not quite as universalistic as left-wing people think they are, but still more universalistic than they are. And on the other hand, uh, left-wing people think that uh, wise people are somewhat more tradition-oriented, somewhat more respectful of tradition Mm -hmm. than they themselves are. So it's not like the wise ideal, uh, ideally wise person is simply a left-wing person. There is some kind of middle ground. and, And that was really interesting to see. But Still, I don't think um, right-wing people would really consider Haider as an ideally wise person. They might consider him as an ideal politician, but mm. they wouldn't wouldn't say that he was perfectly wise. So that that's interesting because I never come across when I'm speaking to people about wisdom. I never come across people who just go, "Ah, wisdom doesn't sound that that good, really." You know, everyone thinks it's a good. I I had assumed that everyone would aspire to wisdom. So, but here is some data saying. On both sides of the spectrum, people aren't say aren't prioritizing wisdom in who they would get behind as a leader. I think especially right wing people might I mean they might totally value wisdom in many ways, but they might not value wisdom in a leader that much. I mean they I don't think people voted for Donald Trump because they think he's so mm. wise. <laughs> right. I think they voted for him being perfectly aware of the fact that he's not the wisest person in the room mm. most of the time. Except if he's alone probably. <laughs> but um they th- they probably think they don't we don't need a wise leader, we we need somebody who takes care of our needs, right? I mean and they may right. have been badly misled in that sense as well. But I think what they were thinking was, we. it might be nice to have a wise leader in some kind of ideal world, but mm-hmm. we need somebody who fights mm-hmm. for us, right? For my, our group against all other groups. And so I think wisdom might just not be what people go for, at least some people go for when they vote for their leaders. Hmm. So this actually provides a really interesting transition to the next set of questions Charles and I were wondering about. And this our questions concerns the contemporary problems that the world is facing today where wisdom seems to be uh, needed. 
and now you, in addition to editing, you, you seem to be editing a lot of things recently. <laughs> Hopefully uh, not uh, anymore. <laughs> well, it's, there's always hope. Um, and one of the things that you edited is this beautiful book called Applying Wisdom to Contemporary World Problems, where you look sort of at insights from research and how can they provide solutions or at least suggest some ways to work through some of the challenges uh, we face, like terrorism, climate change, inequality. Uh, can you talk to us through at least one example from this? Uh, well, first of all, this is a really ambitious and <laughs> interesting enterprise like that tried to put this scientific insights together in a way that would be able to communicate something to the lay audience or maybe more scientific audience. But also, uh, what would be the most striking examples that you found there uh, in this work? Well, to be honest, I was a little, I mean, it, this was probably not unexpected, but I was a little sad that we didn't get that much in terms of really concrete, concrete applications of wisdom mm -hmm. to like to concrete life problems. Right. So there's no nobody wrote about how wisdom could basically solve the problem of climate change <laughs> mm. or global inequality. I mean, there were lots of people who were saying really interesting things the, the different chapters were interpreting current problems of the world from a wisdom lens. And I think there were some really interesting suggestions and insights. But many insights were more about why it's so difficult to be wise in this world of today, right? Mm, so, right. which is probably just due to the state of the world. But of course, it would have been nicer to find more concrete solutions. But one one domain where I thought there were really some exciting um, approaches that were described was medical medical work, actually. So there were two mm -hmm. chapters, one uh, by Schwartz and Sharp and one by Peggy Plus Ogan who talked about concrete examples uh, about wise ways of working with patients in different parts of medicine, where one problem is that you need different specialists to sit down together at one table. And then one big mm -hmm. problem has been in medicine that people tend to look at patients as bodies and not as people with a soul and a mind and all mm. kinds of needs. And there seems to be um, there's a lot of progress seems to be made, at least in some places in the world, by groups that decide to work together, people from different specializations, including nurses, including all kinds of special therapists, working together for the sake of optimizing care for patients, which mm -hmm. in addition to, to optimizing care, optimizing the way patients feel about care also seems to be cost effective even in some cases mm -hmm. because pa patients get better care when the different specialists sit down together on one at one table of course this also implies a certain culture of being allowed to criticize one another being allowed mm -hmm. to talk about mistakes being allowed to talk about difficulties and there seem to be models happening more and more in, in, in hospitals and other medical institutions, at least all over North America, that really seem to be wisdom implicated. They really sound like wisdom, wisdom implemented in, in real life. That's fascinating. We have here in Toronto one of the former students of Amos Tversky, who mm -hmm. has done quite a bit of research at Sunnybrook, uh, I think, hospital, trying to understand sort of biases and uh, errors that doctors make. But I think you suggest something else beyond just the decision-making mistakes when you talk about wisdom in the medical setting, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, one, one interesting topic is really just 
the uh, what what do you focus on as a medical professional uh, when you're when you're talking to a patient or mm -hmm. about the patient, right? And uh, having putting the focus back on what's best for the patient, right? On really not seeing the patient just as some kind of organism, but as an, a, a living being that has needs that might be might be asked what they actually want. Mm -hmm. When you think about the the really difficult situations like in palliative care, in oncology, and so on. Right talking to people about what their needs are, what they actually want, talking to their families, um, including them in decisions that are being made, not just focusing on, on the medical part of it. And within the medical part, focusing on different different groups of specialists working together. There seems to be a lot that can actually be done in those domains and that actually is being done more and more. So that's really a promising area, I think. I was uh, keen to dive in here just i when i was sort of preparing for the episode uh judith i found that you'd run a, a research project called the life project when you were looking at conditions that foster or, or maybe even hinder wisdom in two specific sectors of the workplace one was managers and the other was teachers and i just like i wanted to nip in really quickly because my background's teaching any sort of helpful insights from that like what are the sort of conditions that are fostering and hindering wisdom in in uh, the education sector at the moment well, one thing, I mean, we were really trying, what we were really hoping for was to be able to focus on those conditions. And actually, people talked more about people than about conditions uh, okay. or situations. <laughs> but I mean, I was, what I'm still really interested in is how, I don't know, I mean, I know a bit of uh, educational systems in other countries, but at least in Austria, there are strong pressures on teachers where they have to, uh, there are very clear regulations about what kids have to learn at what mm -hmm. age and so mm -hmm. on. So everything is very regulated. Mm -hmm. There, Kids have to take exams and teachers are evaluated by the performance of the kids and so mm -hmm. on. I guess it's the same in many places sure. in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so one question is whether wisdom is even possible under those structural uh, constraints, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what we were doing in the first phase of this study was basically looking for stories both from teachers and from students about occasions where a teacher did something really wise. Again, we got some really beautiful st stories mm -hmm. more from students than from teachers. Actually, teachers had been of difficulty with uh, identifying themselves <laughs> as wise. We also asked about situations where they did something really unwise and it was quite interesting as well. Okay. Some of the things that came out quite clearly as, as characteristics of, of wisdom in teachers were having personal relationship to the kids. And that's something that's not just characteristic of wise teachers, but of mm. good teachers, I guess, in general, right? There's lots of research saying that you learn well when you have a personal relationship of some kind with your mm -hmm. teacher. Mm -hmm. Students also talked about authenticity. Wise teachers were teachers who weren't just teachers. They were people, right? They were persons. They would right. talk about right. their families, their lives, things like that. They would build personal relationships with the kids. Mm. They would also really care about the kids. That was something that clearly came out. They would see the kids and be interested in the kids as person and not uh, just as something that has to learn math. <laughs> they were really, that's that's they like really what you said about the doctors as well, isn't it? Yes, and yes. It's a, it's, it's kind of, this is a pattern that keeps, yeah. it seems to be coming up all over the place. Yeah. One funny thing that I really liked was that in lots of those stories, teachers would bend the rules in some way a little <laughs> bit for yeah. the sake of, yeah, for the sake of a child, for the sake of some larger, more important need than, than the demands of some kind of regulation, right? So, yeah, being, being human beings in relation to other human beings seems to be one thing that makes a teacher wise. So I have one more question related to the uh, topic of whether it's possible to have wisdom in certain professions. Politics. 
so, you this. Yeah. You gave a talk once, I think, a few years ago at the Karolinska Institute, where you even raised the question where whether it's even viable. Or, uh, well, what do you think about it? Politics and wisdom. I mean, of course, we would all love to have wise politicians, right? But then it it, it hardly ever happens, right? I mean, if you look at Barack Obama, for example, he was, I, I would say that some of the things that he tried to do were really along the lines of wisdom. He was really trying to make broad decisions where he would include people from the other side of the political spectrum. But unfortunately, the other side of the political spectrum completely refused, right? So that's maybe one example of how how wisdom is just being made impossible. But I think there are, there are several reasons why politicians are really wise. One reason is why, as we, we talked about this earlier already, voters might not vote for politicians because of their wisdom, right? Many voters might vote for somebody who they think will really stand in for their needs mm -hmm. and interests, mm -hmm. even if they don't think that person is particularly wise. Mm -hmm. Sometimes right. these things come together and sometimes people actually think this wise person might care about all of us and then they might get elected. But then, of course, what happens is then politics is politics. And politics means lots of compromise, having to compromise your own ideals, right? Having to give up on some ideals to make a deal with somebody to get something mm -hmm. else. So you very soon, I think, reality basically strikes and you learn how many things you cannot do that you think would be really important. So my impression is that... If a wise person gets into politics, they tend to get out relatively quickly. <laughs> uh, or politics is not that attractive to uh, wise people at all. One thing is you need to get reelected every four or five years. So you have to play to, to the voters, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we had this one politician and he's, I think, a nice example. Fred Sinovac, he uh, was a chancellor for a not very long time. I don't know before, in, in the 19. 1980s, 1990s, mm -hmm. something like that. And he once um, said in an interview that something was really complicated and that he and he, he continued to say that actually he thought it was important to convey to people how complex some things are and mm -hmm. to not ju just act as if simple solutions are always possible, right? Mm -hmm. But this part of what he said was never really cited. Basically, he was cited for saying it's all very complicated and this was completely um, used against him, right? <laughs> in the sense of ah, he's just too... too too dumb to whatever. So this really true and I think quite wise statement <laughs> completely worked against him. And I yeah. think that's somewhat typical for what, what can happen in politics to wise people. So I think if we want wise politicians, we shouldn't wait for them to get elected. We should think about, and that brings us back to your research, Igor, we th should think about how we can create structures that may enable more wisdom in politics or may maybe even force <laughs> politicians to be a little wiser. That might be more, more viable than waiting for wise politicians to emerge. Judith, thank you so much. This has been fantastic, far-ranging discussion. We've kind of got into the more model. We've got into um, how you measure wisdom itself, which is a, an ongoing question. And we've even looked at how this research can make its way out into the world, which I think is will be of huge interest to the, to the audience. So thank you so much for sharing all your expertise with us. It's been thank fantastic. you so much, Judith. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great experience, really interesting. And now it's time for a summary. First, we spoke about the Moore model of life experience, a framework Judith developed to answer the question, why do some people grow wiser over the course of their lives and others don't? The model suggests that five resources, openness, empathy, emotional sensitivity, reflectivity, and managing uncertainty and uncontrollability, 
help people to live through difficult experiences and also later reflect on them in ways which lead to growth in wisdom. The style of reflection, exploring the experience for insight or prioritising instead simply feeling better, seems also to be an important factor, as does how we tell our story to others and even who we choose to share our story with. We then spoke about how to measure wisdom. Largely, wisdom is measured through self-report measures and performance-based measures. Self-reports are problematic since rating oneself is especially tricky for wisdom-related components. Performance-based measures have considerable strengths but can struggle to replicate the kind of emotional situations that often demand wisdom in the real world. We also spoke about how wisdom is conceived by people across the political spectrum. It seems that right-leaning people think wise people care more about humanity than they do, and left-leaning people think that wise people care more about tradition than they do, suggesting that people across the spectrum don't necessarily prioritise wisdom as a quality they look for or expect in a leader. Finally, we spoke about applying wisdom to contemporary world problems. The medical field may benefit from encouraging specialists to work together more closely and considering all aspects of the human being under their care, not just the medical symptoms. In terms of politics, the compromises of values required appears to put wise people off politics and perhaps rather than waiting for them to enter the field, we should focus on creating structures that enable wiser behaviour in the political arena. That's it for this episode. Until next time on the On Wisdom Podcast.